we're back into our series on the Lord's Prayer. And so we're calling this this series, Teach Us to Pray. Of course, part of what we know is that the disciples um, watched Jesus, and he would go off into the wilderness. He'd go out early in the morning. He'd go off late at night. He'd go be alone, and he would spend time in prayer. And so at some point in their ministry or in his ministry, the disciples came to him and said, teach us to pray. And of course, what we see is he answered that request by teaching them the Lord's Prayer. And so if you have ever studied the Lord's Prayer, part of what you know is that it's really broken up into various clauses. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, etc., etc. And so what we have been doing over the last several weeks is we've been looking at each of those clauses in the hopes of trying to understand what it is that Jesus is asking us to pray for and how it is that he's asking us to pray. So we looked at the term, our Father who art in heaven. Again, this, this matters so much because when we come to God, we're not coming to someone who is a judge. We're not some, coming to somebody who's an angry boss. Rather, uh, we are coming to a father who loves us and wants to care for us and wants to give us good gifts. And then we look at the phrase, hallowed be thy name. And we took a look at why that was important, that we understand why it is that when we pray, we are actually driven by a desire to see God's name be hallowed. Part of what it does is when we begin by praying that God's name would be hallowed, it, it orders our loves. Augustine talked about sin as disordered love. And so when we pray, uh, hallowed be thy name, part of what we're praying is that God would correctly order the loves of our heart. And then several weeks ago, before I left to go out of town, we looked at thy kingdom come, this idea of God's kingdom. What does that mean? And then today we're going to be looking at the clause, thy will be done uh, on earth as it is in heaven. So we're going to be doing this. We're going to read uh, Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 13. You can follow along with me either in your Bible or it'll be up on the screen. And then after I read this section, we'll take a moment and we'll pray. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, that's the actors, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, I pray that um, you would give us hearts that uh, are able to pray this prayer that you've taught us. And Father, I pray that as we pray this prayer that you taught the disciples and that they have now then passed down to us, Father, that our hearts would be changed even as we pray that prayer. Father, I pray that we would come to you um, as a father. Father, I pray that we would be passionate about seeing your name be lifted up, set apart, and holy in this world that we live in. Father, I pray that we would be passionate about seeing your kingdom come here on earth, Father. I pray that we would be passionate also that your will would be done. Pray these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So it's not uncommon these days to hear the term narcissist thrown around. In fact, it's funny, I was at lunch yesterday with someone, 
and they use the term narcissist. Now, obviously, there's a, a classic psychological definition of that, and then there's the uh, sort of popular level definition of that. But we kind of all understand that it's somebody who's self-centered and who's arrogant. And, uh, and classically, part of what it means is that the people who really struggle with um, you know, narcissist personality disorder believe that if everybody would just do what they told them to do, then the world would be good. It would be sort of right as it should be. Unfortunately, we all know that's not true. In fact, it's probably the opposite of what's true. Um, the origin of that term is actually found in uh, Greek mythology. And so uh, if you remember, there was a, a, a character that Ovid mentions, and uh, this character is called Narcissus. There's a picture of him right there, a young boy. But basically, there was a river deity and a wood nymph, and they were buddies and got together. They dated for a little while. They had a child. His name was Narcissus. And he was a beautiful, beautiful little baby, a beautiful little boy, and grew up to even be a more handsome young man. And uh, they took uh, Narcissus to see a seer, and the seer basically said, hey, he'll be great. He'll be fine. He'll live a long life as long as he doesn't see his own reflection. So fast forward any number of years, and he's a teenager, and he's out in the woods hunting, and there's a, a mountain nymph uh, who sees uh, Narcissus, and she falls in love with him. And so she begins following him through the woods, and at one point, she uh, comes up behind him. She gives him a big hug and proclaims her love to Narcissus, and he pushes her away. He rebuffs her, and she runs off, and now her name is Echo. Uh, she wanders in valleys, and you can only sort of hear uh, distantly her voice, and so that's sort of how the Echo came to be. Anyway. And so what happened was Aphrodite, the goddess of love, saw this interaction and she was angry about it. And so she decided to punish Narcissus by making him see his reflection in a still pool of water in the woods. And so Narcissus, he's hunting, he's hot and sweaty, he goes to sort of refresh himself at this pool. He sees his own image in the pool and he falls in love with himself. He remains rooted in, the, in place until he finally becomes a daffodil, right? That's... Also, the daffodil is another term for that is the narcissus. Fast forward 2,000 years, and we have Sigmund Freud writing his famous paper on narcissism. In common parlance, narcissism is extreme self-centeredness and self-love. No surprise that we know people that struggle with this. In fact, I would argue that because of sin and because of brokenness, that each of us struggles with our own versions of narcissism. Um, one of the places that we see our narcissism working itself out is in our prayer lives. And the way that we see this is when it comes to prayer, instead of praying, thy will be done, what we really pray is my will be done, right? Very few of us struggle with praying that God's will would be done all the time, so much so we focus on his will that we, at the end of a time of praying, we go, oh man, I totally forgot to pray for myself. That just doesn't happen very often. Now, ultimately, we don't have a prayer problem, I would argue. I would say that we have a heart problem. In the words of Tim Keller, the purpose of prayer is to get the heart back into its true orbit. Let me read that one more time. The purpose of prayer is to get the heart back into its true orbit. Today, we're focusing on this clause, thy will be done, in the Lord's Prayer. But we do have to ask the question, what exactly does that mean? The Bible actually speaks of God's will in at least three different ways. Uh, the question is, which one of those ways is Jesus talking about when he teaches the disciples how to pray in the Lord's Prayer? Before we answer that question, uh, let's look at the three different wills that we think Scripture talks about. They're as follows, God's revealed will, his decretive will, and his dispositional will. 
his revealed will, his decretive will, and his dispositional will. Let's start off by looking at God's revealed will. Now, what we just referred to as God's revealed will, in other words, it's the will that we can know about him, uh, is also known as God's preceptive will, his preceptive will. In other words, God has given us certain precepts for how he wants us to live life or how we should live life. So those of you who uh, are struggling with the idea of a precept, a precept is a commandment or direction given as a rule of action or conduct. Or another definition of a precept is that it's a procedural directive or rule for the performance of some technical operation. Those are both a little bit wooden. But ultimately what you need to know is this, the goal of any precept is to make sure that things run smoothly, that they're effective and they're, they're efficient. Let me give you an example. So over the last six years, Krista and I have taught our children how to drive with various degrees of success. Driving in America is founded on certain precepts, right? So you drive on the right-hand side of the road. That's one of the American precepts of driving. It's actually interesting. If you study why it is that we drive on the right-hand side of the road and the British drive on the left-hand side of the road, it is because when we made those decisions, we very much made them because we didn't want to be British. There was no other reason other than that. I listened to a podcast on it one time. Anyway, one of the other precepts that functions or operates in the way that we drive here in America is that when you come to a stop sign, you stop completely, right? Or at least you're supposed to. You look both ways, and then if no other cars are coming, you can go. You can turn right on red unless otherwise noted, but you still have to defer to oncoming traffic. Just a good reminder for all of us. Can you imagine trying to drive through the suburbs of Buckhead from 3 to 5 or 3 to 6 or 3 to 7 p.m. without any precepts to guide you? Things would descend into utter chaos in an absolute hurry. They are already utter chaos there. It would just get worse. People wouldn't just be late to work. There would be innumerable wrecks. And ultimately, if we had no precepts to determine how we drive, uh, drove, then people would die. Similarly, God gives us precepts for how to live life in a way that leads to human flourishing and at the same time minimize human suffering. Let me say that one more time. God gives us precepts, we read the Ten Commandments this morning, that ultimately help us flourish as human beings, but they also limit and minimize human suffering. You can see how that would play out. Some of those precepts are stated positively. So Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. Can you imagine if we lived in a world where we loved our neighbor as ourselves, right? We give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. What if we gave other people the benefit of the doubt? And he said to pray for those who persecute you. What if we lived in a world where we prayed for the people that were our enemies that persecuted us? What if we, what if we prayed and instead of looking with contempt upon people that disagree with us, what if we loved them? The world would be a far different place. Other precepts, instead of being stated positively, are stated negatively. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not covet, right? Again, imagine a world where each of these precepts were obeyed perfectly, right? Very quickly, I think what you would realize is that's the world you actually want to live in, because that's the world that God created. One of the critiques of Christianity over the years has been that it's a religion of do's and don'ts. And in one sense, that's actually true. Just like playing the cello has its own lists of do's and don'ts. It has its own lists of rules. 
And if you abide by them and practice them, you might become the next Yo-Yo Ma, if you guys are familiar with Yo-Yo Ma. And if you don't follow those precepts, and if you don't abide by them, then you just end up with a very large, expensive, and beautiful paperweight, right? Or decoration in your house. The goal of God's precepts aren't to burden us unnecessarily, but they are instead revealed to us in order to set us free, in order to make us fully human, right? Every athlete knows that if you train according to certain precepts, it actually makes you better. Every musician knows that if you train according to certain precepts, that will make you better. That's what God's precepts are for in the case of God's revealed will. The question is, is it this will that God is referring to in the Lord's prayer? What we'll do is we'll get to that answer in just a moment, but before we do that, let's go on to the second usage of God's will. So first one is God's revealed or preceptive will. The second will that scripture talks about is God's decretive will. Now, if you guys know what this is, you'll know that the topic of God's decretive or sovereign will makes many of us a little bit uncomfortable. We know that the Bible has any number of different things to say about this issue, but we're very, very wary about impinging upon human freedom. Here's what Martin Luther had to say in his book, The Bondage of the Will. It is then fundamentally necessary and wholesome for Christians to know that God foreknows nothing contingently. In other words, um, God's knowledge by definition is not contingent, right? In other words, it's sort of the whole premise of the bondage of the will. If God knows something, then that thing is guaranteed to come to pass. But, back to the quote, that he foresees purposes and does all things according to his own immutable eternal and infallible will, right? And so in other words, what Luther was saying there is there's some way in which God decrees that which comes to pass. Of course, John Calvin, if you've ever read John Calvin, we know John Calvin agrees with this. St. Augustine agrees with this. John Piper agrees with this. John Stott agrees with this. Tim Keller agrees with this. They all agree that there's this idea of God's decretive or sovereign will. Now, the issue, I think, for many of us, and maybe even for them, is a question of degree. But ultimately, a simple reading of the Old Testament and a simple reading of the New Testament requires that we acknowledge God's active role in our lives and God's active role in human history. Joseph, that we read about in Genesis, Joseph surely did. In Genesis chapter 50, Joseph's brothers, you guys are familiar with the story probably, these are the very guys that sold him, their brother, into slavery. And then Joseph had all these terrible things happen to him. Well, after Joseph's dad died, they came to him because they were fearful that once their dad died, that he would actually sort of take punitive measures against them. And so they try to seek reconciliation with him after their dad's death. And here's the rest of that story. It says this, his brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God. In other words, is it my place to judge or punish? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And so here in this passage of Genesis 50, we do see that there is responsibility on behalf of these brothers. But what, part of what Joseph acknowledges is that ultimately God is sovereign and that what they intended for evil, God intended for good we see that David also believes in this idea of God's decretive will. In Psalm 139, we read this, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them 
came to be. Paul, in Romans 8, says the same thing. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. It doesn't say that all things are good, but it does say that all things work together for the good of them that love God and are called according to his purpose. There's some way in which God decrees that which comes to pass. And the question for us this morning isn't really whether or not that's true. I think the Bible clearly reveals that it is. The question is whether or not it is to this will that Jesus is referring to in the Lord's Prayer. I'm going to, again, try to answer that question in just a moment. But before we do, let's take a look at the final way in which we read of of the Bible talking about God's will. And it's God's dispositional will, God's dispositional will. So we've looked briefly at God's revealed will. Again, that's the commandments. That's sort of the rules of humanity in some respects. We looked at his decretive will. But the final way that God, the Bible speaks of God's will is in reference to his disposition or in terms of his attitude. So ultimately, God's dispositional will describes his heart, right? Describes his emotions. God's dispositional will is a way of illuminating what things are pleasing to God and what things sadden him or what things anger him. For example, in 2 Peter 3.9, we read the following. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The word wanting there is, is the Greek word bulamai, and it means to will or desire. And so in this sense, God wants or desires all people to enter into a relationship with him. That's the story of the prodigal son, right? I mean, what Jesus is doing there is he's saying there's two kinds of people. There's some kinds of people that reject me and they go party and they go live life completely apart from me. And there's another kind of people that also reject me, but the way they reject me is they try to bribe me by living a good life in order that I'll give them what they want. But both of them don't care actually about having a relationship with me. They just want what I've got to offer, right? And so again, part of what we see here is that God desires that no one would perish, but everyone would come to repentance. We see that same truth exemplified in Ezekiel 33. Verse 11 says this, Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. We also see God's heart in Jesus in the story of the rich young ruler in Mark 10. Verse 17 begins this way, And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Uh, In other words, God's revealed will. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. What a great picture, a great image of Jesus' heart or God's heart in Jesus. Clearly, Jesus loved this man. Mark tells us so. Clearly, Jesus was saddened when this man walked away. Clearly, in one sense, it was Jesus' desire that this man come and follow him and inherit eternal life. 
I mean, the question is, could the Son of God have snapped his fingers and had that man turn around and come right back to him? I think maybe he could have, but he didn't. Jesus chose to let him go. Is this the will that Jesus is speaking speaking of in the Lord's Prayer, or is it God's decretive will, or is it his preceptive will? Those of you who have studied theology or read the Bible very much over the years, you know how deeply this rabbit hole can go. In fact, some of you guys who are thinkers are already sort of running scenarios through your mind about how all these things could be true. The question for us today is, when Jesus told his disciples to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, which of these did he have in mind? I think the answer is that Jesus intends us to pray the Lord's Prayer in light of each of them. I know that sounds like I'm taking the easy way out, but the truth is I've been praying the Lord's Prayer now for about 16 years pretty consistently. I was part of a church planting um, network down in Atlanta, and we would uh, meet monthly, and we would spend an hour praying through the Lord's Prayer. And what you find out is when you begin praying through the Lord's Prayer seriously, like let's say you go pray, go for like a prayer walk, And you just begin with our Father who art in heaven. You can spend an hour just praying about the various implications of what it means that God is our heavenly Father. And that's true for his kingdom coming, right? It's true for each of those elements of the Lord's prayer. What you discover is that each of those clauses is a deep well that I think Jesus actually desires us to go down into and spend time in and wander around. I think that's true for this clause, thy will be done as well. I think that when we pray it, we see that it incorporates each of these various forms of God's will. When we pray, thy will be done, in light of God's dispositional will, we're praying that our hearts would come into alignment with God's heart. We pray that we might desire truth and goodness and faithfulness and love and purity. Those are the things that God loves. And so when we pray, thy will be done, what we're saying is we want our hearts to love those things too. When we pray that we would hunger and thirst for righteousness, that's again praying that that longing, uh, that thirsting for righteousness would exist in our hearts as well. When we pray and long for others to align their hearts with God's heart, what we're doing is we're praying that we would come into alignment with what God loves and that we would come into alignment with what he hates. One of my most common prayers for my children is that they would love what God loves and that they would be offended at what offends God, right? I mean, ultimately what I'm praying is that their, their hearts would be like his heart. And so we pray, thy will be done. Lord, let our hearts align with you. When we pray, thy will be done, In light of God's preceptive will, we're praying that humanity would align not just their hearts, but their wills with God's instruction manual for human flourishing. We pray that we would live in a world with no gossip and no slander, right? Just think about that for a minute. Think about if we lived in a world with no gossip and no slander, the internet would shut down, right? The media industry would change drastically, When we pray, uh, thy will be done, we're praying that we would live in a world where there's no infidelity. Think about how many of you in this room have had your lives um, damaged deeply by infidelity. We pray, thy will be done, and what we're doing is we're praying that we would live in a world with no envy. Just think about that for a moment. We pray, thy will be done, and we pray that we would live in a world where we love our neighbors as ourselves. And again, as I said earlier, whether you realize it or not, 
this is actually the world that you long to live in. You would be safe, right? You'd be free. You'd flourish. Thy will be done. When we pray thy will be done in terms of God's decretive will, we're praying our hearts and our minds in line with God's sovereign plan for our life as well. We surrender our will to his will and our plans to his plans. And we do this when we don't get into the school of our choice, right? We pray, thy will be done. Uh, When the girlfriend we thought we were going to marry breaks up with us, we pray, thy will be done. And when we're diagnosed with cancer, we still pray, thy will be done because we believe that God is good. And we believe that God loves us. And we believe that he is working out a plan that will get a standing ovation from each of us at the end of time. I realize I may have made all that sound far too easy. Some of you are suffering right now, and you're absolutely struggling to see how God's will could possibly make any sense for what you're going through. I get that. And, and the good news is you are not alone in that and those questions and those doubts. Believe it or not, Jesus has been where you are. On the night before Jesus was to go to the cross, Jesus wrestled with God in prayer, asking, begging, if there wasn't some other way to rescue humanity from the grip of sin and death. In Matthew 26, we read of this account and the other gospels as well. It says this, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Not what the point of the sermon is about today, but I love the fact that Jesus didn't try suffering alone, right? In his hour of need, he asked his three friends to be with him so he wouldn't be alone. There's a lesson for us in that too. Verse 39, going a little farther, he, that is Jesus, fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. The very last hour, Jesus prayed, yet not as I will, but as you will. He went away a second time and prayed, My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, I pray that we would pray the Lord's Prayer, Father, that we would commit our hearts and our minds and our words and time to praying through this prayer that you taught your disciples and that you're now teaching us. And Father, I pray that as we pray this prayer that we would indeed surrender um, our hearts and our minds and our bodies to your will, Father, whether that's your dispositional will, Father, your revealed will, Father, your decretive will, whatever it is, Father, I pray that we would be so filled with awe at who you are and that we would uh, be so filled with knowing the love that you have for us through Jesus that though it is challenging often, Father, that we would join with Jesus as pr- in praying that your will would be done. Father, we pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.